Hello and welcome to episode 63 of Real Life Ghost Stories. How you do? To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. We would like to thank Rebecca. Josh Swales. Jordan Miner. JJ Christensen. Dave Avila. Andrew Benese. Rona. Lloyd Parsley. Nixie Sharples. Mackenzie McDonnell. Jenny Whelan. Amy Mock. Kazim Herji. Constance Hope. Ella. Melissa Gilroy. Ulrich Spies. Katie Murray. Sandra George. And Kynie Fryer. Thank you so much for being our gorgeous Patreon subscribers. We appreciate it and we love you all very much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Our film review this week. Is not really a film. Isn't a film because it's a series. Dun, dun, dun. We're fucking rogue. Wow. Are you ready? Yeah. Our film review this week is Dracula. Dracula was released in 2020. It has an IMDb rating of 7.1 out of 10 and 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Would you like a synopsis? Yes. Jonathan Harker travels to Transylvania to meet a new client and finalise the stale of his... The what now? Bollocks. And finalise <laughs> the sale of a stately house in London, but finds himself trapped in a terrifying maze-like castle of undead brides with a vampire count whose ambition is to conquer the world. So this was a three-part BBC series that was released last couple of weeks ago. Yep. What were your thoughts on it? I, surprise, surprise, really liked it. Why? That kind of stuff doesn't normally twig with me like I don't like reenactments of old stories particularly and I thought it was going to be a bit dull and then it was actually quite good and I was quite interested by it I liked the way it was kind of a bit campy horror at times Agnes Van Helsing was badass Agnes Van Helsing who is the nun hunting Dracula is the fucking best thing about this TV show oh hands down she is class I know we differed on how much we liked it but I agree with you on that she definitely makes it 100% I did like it I mean the first episode it it was very camp horror because the first the first episode when you first see like a monster it looks like a fucking man made out of play-doh oh the I wish they just spent a bit more money on the special effects budget like oh, shocking it was really really bad like really bad it took till the last episode till I saw something where I was like oh they've actually spent a bit of money on that Oh, and that was freaky as yeah. well. Oh, God, the little undead child. That well, was freaky. Even he wasn't that good. I was thinking more about... Well, when you couldn't see... It was like scarier than yeah. I thought it was. I thought it was a really interesting adaptation. It's the same guys who wrote Sherlock. Yeah, Mr. Moffat and his friends. And I just... The first episode was really good. I thought it was really promising. And then I thought it went downhill from there. I thought the second and third episode, second episode was okay. And then I thought the third episode was a bit rushed and a bit forced. And oh. I thought the ending was a bit naff. Sorry, oh, see, there you I go. I disagree with you. I think it went downhill instantly <laughs> in the first half of the second. No, in the first half of the second episode. And then as soon as Agnes rocked up on the boat. Oh yeah, if it wasn't, like I said, it, it was wasn't for Agnes. Again. And then I actually felt the third episode was better than the second episode, to be honest with you. Because it was just a bit different. I liked so the third episode. A spoiler alert: if you do, if you want to watch it and you haven't seen it, skip ahead. Although, I mean, I haven't even read Dracula. Full disclosure, but kind of everyone knows the story, right? Yeah. But you know what you don't know is the bit where Dracula ends up in modern day London, which could have been really cool, but I just thought it was a little bit forced. It was a little. It bit... was rushed. 
I and I, mm. the more I think about it, the more I fucking didn't like the ending. No, the ending was trash. Ash. And which it, I'm not I think... going to talk about it at all because I don't want to spoil it. No, I don't want to spoil it, but I did find it very disappointing. The ending. I mean, I... it was an interesting take on it. I thought it should have gone out with a bang, but it didn't. It it went out with a whimper. What I liked about it was it it was like. So Dracula uses the law to his advantage, that's all I'm going to say. And you could just imagine that kind of thing actually happening. In Which I thoroughly enjoyed, yeah. Um, and there's lots of little nods to like modern stuff in the, the final episode, which I thought were quite clever. was quite clever. And the fact that he finds a bride in the modern era that's potentially the best bride he's ever found, which ends up being the key, which I thought was... It was quite, I thought it was quite clever. I disagree with you. I don't think it was rushed. I think it was done... Probably as well as you could without being too fantastical about it. Maybe I just th- I just thought it was a lot of there was a lot of concept to squeeze into an hour and a half when you put them in the modern world. Yeah, but then you so, you risk having a mini series of Dracula in London and yeah, I guess dire. I guess that would be dire. I wouldn't recommend that at all. But definitely my top thing about this series is Agatha. She's fucking class is Agatha or Agnes because I called it Agnes I think you're it's right Agatha. Yeah, it's Agatha she's fucking class and she's... I loved her and I love her character and I think it's really good fun there are some bits I think that were a bit clumsy but there also were some like really clever lines and really funny bits as well it is very Sherlock if you if yeah, you like the Sherlock series you'll probably like this so what would you give it out of five? Four and a half. I'm taking half away because I I just don't understand how something like that makes it into BBC primetime with that who's terrible special effects. I mean, the special effects were awful. There was a green You've got screen the budget, moment. BBC. You can pay Gary Lineker like twenty million pounds or whatever you're paying him. Yeah, there it's was a green high, but... there was a green screen moment that was absolutely appalling. Oh, it's dirty. I don't appreciate <laughs> I don't appreciate that kind of thing. <laughs> just spend the money, BBC. Stop being tight. I'm gonna give it four out of five. Oh, that's higher than I thought you'd go. Because I think I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the first episode and I was excited about watching the rest of it. The second episode, the first half bored the bollocks off me and then the second half was really good. And then the third episode had some really interesting concepts. But kind of, the I hated the ending. So maybe a three then. I'm uh, going to give it a three. See, the thing with the ending is I can see why they did it. Yeah, but it was a cop-out. But... It- the actual ending was a cough out, but like the reason behind the ending wasn't a cough out. No, no, the so reason behind, like the reason, the reason behind what happened, I thought was clever, but the actual ending itself was an absolute yeah. cop out, and I was really annoyed by it. So, well, and if you watch it and you can explain fire sex to me, I need to know. I'm less than a two or three. Okay. Based on the fire sex, actually, okay. based on the fire sex. <laughs> so obviously, yep. Watching Dracula. Yep. Love a bit of a vampire. Yep. Could we do an episode on vampires? We're doing an episode on vampires hey. today. Um, so I did loads of research into like vampires and different vampire legends and different vampire stories. And I settled on a couple of vampire stories that I thought were really interesting from history. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. To have your tiny mind blown. Thanks. I think. Yeah, that was offensive, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I take sorry. it back. I take it back. You've got a massive mind. <laughs> Big mind energy. Let's go. <laughs> I like that. So we're going to start with some little historical facts about vampires. Are you ready? Okay, yeah. And my research comes from National Geographic. So it's true then. True story, basically. Yeah, true. it absolutely is, 100%. The traits of modern day vampires are pretty well established. They have fangs, drink human blood, 
and can't see themselves in mirrors. They can be warded off with garlic or killed with a stake through the heart. Some, like Dracula, are aristocrats. Oh wait, no. <laughs> That's the wrong one. <laughs> not cats a, playing not, a, not aristocrats. <laughs> Some, like Dracula, are aristocrats who live in castles. But vampires didn't start out so clearly defined. Scholars suspect that the modern conception of these Halloween monsters evolved from various traditional beliefs that were once held throughout Europe. These beliefs centred around the fear that the dead, once buried, could come back and harm the living. These legends arose from a misunderstanding of how bodies decompose. As a corpse's skin shrinks, its teeth and fingernails can appear to have grown longer. And as internal organs break down, a dark purge fluid can leak out of the nose and mouth. People unfamiliar with this process would interpret this fluid to be blood and suspect that the corpse had been drinking it from the living. Bloody corpses weren't the only cause for suspicion. Before people understood how certain diseases spread, they sometimes imagined vampires were behind the unseen forces slowly ravaging their communities. The one constant in the evolution of vampire legend has been its close association with disease. Trying to kill vampires or prevent them from feeding was a way for people to feel as though they had some control over disease. Because of this, vampire scares tended to coincide with outbreaks of the plague. In 2006, archaeologists unearthed a 16th century skull in Venice, Italy, that had been buried among plague victims with a brick in its mouth. The brick was likely a burial tactic to prevent strega, Italian vampires or witches, from leaving the grave to eat people. Not all vampires were thought to physically leave their grave. In northern Germany, the Noxerher, or after-devourer, stayed in the ground, chewing on their burial shrouds. Again, this belief likely has to do with purge fluid, which could cause the shroud to sag or tear, creating the illusion that a corpse had been chewing it. These stationary masticators were still thought to cause trouble above ground, and were also believed to be most active during outbreaks of the plague. In the 1679 tract on the chewing dead, a Protestant theologian accused the after-devourers of harming their surviving family members through occult processes. He wrote that people could stop them by exhuming the body and stuffing its mouth with soil, and maybe a stone and a coin for good measure. Without the ability to chew, the tract claimed, the corpse would die of starvation. Tales of vampires continued to flourish in southern and eastern European nations in the 17th and 18th centuries, to the chagrin of some leaders. By the mid-18th century, Pope Benedict declared that vampires were fallacious fictions of human fantasy, and the Habsburg ruler, Maria Theresa, condemned vampire beliefs as superstition and fraud. So what are your thoughts? Aren't the Habsburgs the ones that were absolutely hideous because they were so inbred? Yes. I'm feeling like that was then. I would like to defer that question to um, Ollie Travels on his Todd um, because he reads all the history books so I'm sure he knows the answer. Um, can somebody write us in and tell us yep. are the Habsburgs the families with the really big chins because they all had sex with so their siblings? Maybe they were vampires and that's why they were telling everybody that vampires weren't real. Maybe they were. They were. It was, it was like a, big a ruse. It was a big clever ruse. And they said rouge. That's something different, isn't it? Something completely different. Yeah. So, if what are I, your thoughts? Well, vampires fascinate me. Why? Because it, what? So the whole blood drinking thing is like 
there's like traditional warrior stuff to that, isn't there? Yeah. Um, about embodying your the defeated and and like extended life and stuff like that. And actually, I think drinking human blood would probably just make you really sick, which potentially would make you maybe not like the sunlight. So maybe there's some truth in it. I don't know. But there was um there was another article that I found about all the diseases that can affect humans that kind of gave credence to the vampire legend like people who can't actually be in the sun that they also talked about bodies shrinking after death and causing fingernails and and um what's the other one teeth to look bigger so there is a oh, lot right. so that would if someone saw one of those bodies then it would look like they've got fangs essentially, yeah because they got bigger <laughs> yeah essentially and it happens to everybody when they die it's a part of the body like after the body purges fluid the 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 it, the body basically shrivels up but that would suggest that they're looking at dead bodies then this is what i was going to say because how often were these people digging up fucking bodies oh, no honestly yeah is there an element of truth to it maybe what that vampire what do you mean element like of truth to vampires yeah what sorry like an element of truth to vampires like dinosaurs yeah. dinosaurs weren't mythological creatures <laughs> no, but lots of people think they are well they weren't <laughs> but you know just maybe we found vampire bones but we just thought the teeth had grown because they were dead sorry <laughs> no i don't know what's happening okay i'm alarmed know. it's just so the thing that, that concerns me is that it's in law but the chances of an average person seeing a dead body that doesn't write it away for me like that there must be more to it than just just the after effects of death but with the life expectancy back in those days being like so low Surely people would see dead bodies more often, and yeah, there was but not no just such around, thing. Like they put them in the ground, wouldn't they? Yeah, but there was no such thing as morgues. There was no such thing as like you know funeral oh, directors. Yeah, yeah, fair play. When you had a dead body, you just fucking kept it. Well, you just buried it, didn't you? Like straight away. Well, I, I assume they would have had some sort of ritual around it. Yeah, like the way that. Irish people wake their dead for like three days or something. Yeah, but that's a newer ritual, isn't it? Not really. It's quite an old ritual. Well, back in the day, it would have been like Vikings. You would have burned them all, right? Send them off onto the. I don't know. With tangent in again, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Um, sorry. No, I just I think there must be more to it than just dead bodies. Just people seeing. Must have been a vampire. He's still dead. He's not moving, is he? So you believe there's some sort of truth to the vampire legend? No, not not necessarily true. Because there's obviously there's the Vlad Vlad the Impaler got linked, yeah. to it, didn't he? Because of the horrendous things he did to his victims. Mm-hmm. So maybe there was some geezer like knocking around in the olden days, drinking people's blood, and they were just like, "Oh, he's a vampire." Do you know what I mean? Like, there must be more to it. They can't just be from dead bodies because even if they looked like vampires when they were dead, they'd still be dead. It's not like they're suddenly sitting right, up. Right, I see what you mean. They're not suddenly sitting up going, yeah. I want to suck your blood. And the whole point is it's the undead, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's like the idea that they haven't died, which has actually got a bit lost in modern vampire law because it's more about bats and sucking blood now than it is about being undead, really, isn't it? Like, it's taking a backseat because when we're talking about the undead, we talk about zombies these, this day. And yeah, day. that's true. Let me tell you a story then. Okay. I'm going to yeah, tell you... West Philadelphia, no? I'm going to tell you a story about a man called Peter Blagojevic. Or Blagojevic. I don't know which one it is. And I got this story from the India Times. Are you ready? Yes, I'm intrigued now as well. A village in Serbia. Right, I just can't pronounce the village, okay? So it's going to be <laughs> a village from now on. Okay. A village in Serbia is a place where less than 800 people live with a vampire legend. The destination, set in northeast Serbia, is where Peter Blagojevic was born and died in 1725. A peasant 
who is believed to have turned into a vampire after his death. Wait, he born he born and died in 1995. He died the same year he was born. No, he was. That's where he was born. Oh, I I obviously miss. I misheard you. Inflected the sentence. <laughs> Peter Blagojevich was a Serbian peasant, born in the village that I can't name. He, as per the locals, turned into a vampire after his death. According to the people living here. This vampire is responsible for the death of nine villagers. This case is one of the most well-documented, mysterious and outlandish cases of vampire hysteria in the history of supernatural happenings. As per an official report, Imperial Provisor Frumbold, within eight days of Peter's death, nine villagers died, one every 24 hours. Strangely, on their deathbeds, each victim claimed to have been strangled by Peter the night before. Not only this, Peter's wife also told people that he visited her after his death and asked for his shoes. Later, his wife left the village and settled in another for her own safety. As per the folklore, Peter brutally killed his son by biting and drinking his blood when his son refused to give him food. After the incident, all the villagers decided to remove his body from the grave and examine it because all the incidents were hinting at vampirism. When they opened the grave, they saw the body had not even started decomposing. Instead, the corpse had fresh facial hair, while the nails looked like they were still growing, which was supremely unnatural, scary and peculiar. Later, the inhabitants went to the local priest and Frumbold, an official of the Austrian administration, who also saw and recorded the staking of Peter, and asked them to carry out the staking and burning of the vampire to end the horrific deaths. Frumbold's report mentions that the moment villagers put the stake through the vampire's heart, there was a huge flow of fresh blood from the mouth and ears of the corpse. After that, no unnatural deaths were reported in the village. Nearly three centuries later, people of this village are now planning to cash in on the legend and develop the destination as a vampire-themed village to draw more and more tourists from across the globe. Serbia is a region where superstitions and vampire tales are in abundance already, but the story of this village is different, as it is well documented and is an account of real events. People hope that the legend will act as a magnet and draw tourists to the village in huge numbers. I want to go to Kasiliev. Is that what it's called? I don't know, that's what I just read over your shoulder, I'm just guessing. Do uh, you just want to go to a village where a lot of people murdered somebody who clearly wasn't dead? Yeah, you say that, right? Because my theory was Because he like, wasn't dead. No, hang on. Because my theory when you started reading it was like, okay, well he probably fell into a coma and because they didn't have medical science, they probably thought he was dead, buried him. He woke back up, was really angry, started killing people problem solved but they dug him back up again which would mean he'd have to go back into his grave every night which is a lot of effort for a ruse isn't it people have done stranger things <laughs> he literally have to dig himself back up and then somehow get in the coffin and cover himself back up. like he'd have to have an accomplice wouldn't he maybe he did yeah it, i think you'd be surprised at the lengths that people go to in order to you know create some sort of a ruse he could literally have been like commissioned to fucking die and go and kill all somebody's enemies in the village. I mean, that. that is it. Like, like what a job. So I've changed. You've changed this from being a supernatural story to Jason Bourne, basically. I don't know who Jason Bourne is. Spy thriller. It's oh, like the Bourne identity. 
Okay. Is like that what a, no, is, is Jason Bourne a vampire? No, he was an assassin before he Is he a zombie? No. But isn't it great region. though? Isn't it such a great story? Yeah, but that makes more sense, I think, than the body. Why did he want his shoes? So he wasn't running around barefoot. They probably they didn't bury him with shoes on, did they? I mean if he's the undead, I don't think he'd really mind, would he? Well, I'd say it's <laughs> feel pretty uncomfortable back in those days. Probably a lot of gravel and shit on the floor. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be running around barefooted whether I was a vampire or not. Oh, okay. So you'd have very serious vampire standards. Yeah, I think so. If you were a vampire. (laughs) Shoes at a bare minimum, I think. Shoes and nothing else. (laughs) Shoes and a cape. Yeah. (laughs) And then fully naked for shock value. What does that make you? A stripper? No, not a stripper. What are they called? People that expose themselves in parks. That's pretty much the same thing. Pervert? No, there's a word for it. A flasher? A flasher, that was the word I was looking for. How did you say, why did you say strippers and people who expose themselves in parks are the same thing? I would like to clarify that Dan is laughing and shaking his head because he did not mean that no. strippers and people who expose no, no, themselves just, to can, victims are the same thing. I think word, I just said the wrong word. <laughs> Awkward, sorry. People. So I've got two more, so, so you think Peter was a vampire? No. Not necessarily, but I mean, that makes more sense to me where the legend comes from if there's something like that that goes on, which is tangible, rather than just looking at dead people and going, oh, they look a bit different. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, National Geographic, but I'm not down with you. It was actually the India Times. No, the one before oh. was the National Geographic. I agree with the India Times. Okay. So yeah. I've got another story for you. Okay. This one is about Mercy Brown. Ooh. Do you know who Mercy Brown is? I'd say she's from like Louisiana or something. You're going to love this. She's from New Orleans. In 1892, tuberculosis was the leading cause of death in the United States. Then known as consumption, its symptoms included fatigue, night sweats, and the coughing up of white phlegm or even foamy blood. There was no cure or reliable treatment for tuberculosis. Physicians often recommended that a patient affected by the disease should rest, eat well and exercise outdoors. Of course, these home remedies were rarely successful. People with active tuberculosis had an 80% chance of dying from the illness. The terror surrounding such a gruesome death helps explain the madness that befell the small town of Exeter, Rhode Island, at the end of the 19th century. Residents began to fear a vampire, named Mercy Brown, was causing consumption-related deaths in the town, even though she was already dead from that same disease. It all started when a farmer named George Brown lost his wife, Mary Eliza, to tuberculosis in 1884. Two years after the death of his wife, his eldest daughter died of the same illness. Before long, tragedy would strike the Brown family again. As the family members died one by one, people began to suspect that the reason was something far more sinister than a disease. The rest of George Brown's family appeared to be in good health until his son Edwin became seriously ill in 1891. He retreated to the Colorado Springs in the hopes that he would recover in the better climate. However, he returned to Exeter in 1892 in an even worse state. Within the same year, Edwin's sister, Mercy Lena Brown, died from tuberculosis when she was just 19 years old. And with Edwin deteriorating rapidly, his father began to grow increasingly desperate. Meanwhile, several concerned townspeople kept telling George Brown about an old folktale. The superstition claimed that, by some unexplained and unreasonable way, 
in some part of the deceased relative's body, live flesh and blood might be found, which is supposed to feed on the living who are in feeble health. Basically, the myth claims that when members of the same family waste away from consumption, it might be because one of the deceased is draining the life force from their living relatives. As a local newspaper reported, Mr. Brown did not place much credence in the old time theory and resisted their importunities until Wednesday, when the bodies of the wife and two daughters were exhumed and an examination had under the direction of Harold Metcalf, MD of Wickford. Indeed, on the morning of March 17, 1892, a doctor and some locals exhumed the bodies of each family member who had died of tuberculosis. They found skeletons in the graves of Brown's wife and eldest daughter. However, the doctor found that the nine-week-old remains of Mercy Brown were startlingly normal and completely undecayed. Furthermore, blood was found in Mercy Brown's heart and liver. This seemed to confirm the local fears that Mercy Brown was some kind of vampire who had been sucking the life from her living relatives. The doctor tried to explain to the townspeople that Mercy Brown's preserved state was not unusual. After all, she had been buried during the cold winter months. Nevertheless, superstitious locals insisted on removing both her heart and her liver and burning them before reburying her. The ashes were then mixed with water and fed to Edwin. Unfortunately, this supernatural concoction did not cure him as the people had hoped. Edwin died a mere two months later. In 1896, an article from the Boston Daily Globe described how prevalent fears about vampires had become in Rhode Island around the time of Mercy Brown's vampire incident. Such practices of digging up and burning the deceased over fears of vampire-like creatures were not uncommon in many Western countries until the 20th century. But while the Mercy Brown case was far from an isolated incident, her exhumation came at the end of an era for these vampire-inspired rituals. While Mercy Brown had a very short life, we can assume her legacy as the last New England vampire will live on forever thanks to stories passed down over the years. Her surviving relatives reportedly saved local newspaper clippings in family scrapbooks and often discussed the story on Decoration Day when the town's residents decorated local cemeteries. Today, Mercy Brown's gravesite is popular with sightseers and curious visitors, who often leave gifts behind such as jewellery and plastic vampire teeth. Once, there was even a note that read, You go girl. Clearly none of that was happening during the vampire scare of the late 19th century. Even though German scientist Robert Koch... <laughs> I mean, that's probably his name, to be fair. Is it K-O-C-H? Yeah. Yeah had discovered the bacteria that caused tuberculosis in 1882, germ theory only began to take hold a decade later as the contagion was better understood. Infection rates then began to go down as hygiene and nutrition improved. Until then, people resorted to pointing fingers at alleged vampires like Mercy Brown, even when they were no longer alive to defend themselves. It is interesting that both Serbia and Rhode Island were incredibly cold when these people were buried. I mean, I'm assuming Serbia is cold. Certain times of the year, and it's very hot other times of the year. I'm, I'm going to assume that it was cold when Peter died. And thirdly, I failed to see the logic when somebody dies of tuberculosis and the cure is then to feed their remains 
to somebody else in the hope that it will cure tuberculosis. Yeah, but you're taking that from a, a post-germ theory mind, aren't you? These people didn't know about germs and the idea of contagious diseases and stuff like that. So, Isn't it mad that they just didn't know yeah. how we cure this? So, Mer- Stake through the heart. <laughs> Mercy Brown's <laughs> Vampire Emporium. Um, no, Vampire Incident um, has made me go back to visit Peter in Serbia. And I now think that Peter was actually dead. And this was just some guy going around committing murder, <laughs> pretending to be Peter. Pretending to be Peter. Yeah. That is a really good theory. <laughs> yeah. And just being like, oh, I'm Peter, yeah. back from the dead. Yep. And then it was like... Stabby, stabby. When they opened Move the on. grave and it hadn't like deteriorated, he was like, yes, get in. Home and dry. So somebody essentially got away with murder yeah. in a very elaborate yeah, ruse. very elaborate ruse. I think it's really, I have to say, I think it's really in poor taste to leave a set of vampire teeth on her grave. Eh. I'm just like, babe, like that girl was fucking, her body was desecrated after she had died. She died of TB and you're here putting plastic vampire teeth on her grave and saying, you go girl. I don't think she'd planned this out somehow. No, no and she didn't really do anything either, did she? She kind of died. She, she just died yeah. and didn't become a vampire yeah, and not suck a the nice life from either. her family like, TV is gross isn't it yeah like, it's not a good way to go especially back in those days yeah interesting okay but yeah again mate well that well that actually makes less sense than the Peter one like mm-hmm. the Peter one where the law comes from I mean she was dead they didn't see her moving around they presumed that it was she was feasting on them from her box in the ground which is really elaborate it's like um, she's almost like an energy vampire mm. but you can see why the idea of people being undead is so scary to them because it's just so final and they all will have experienced loads of death, wouldn't they, in their life because it's all short life expectancies. So for then someone to go against that must seem like pure evil, mustn't it? Yeah, well, it is. And imagine your loved one, your your daughter, your son, and then suddenly you, you genuinely believe that they are killing your other loved ones from beyond the grave. You'd be like, what a bitch. I have one more vampire story for you. Okay. I wasn't going to talk about this. Is this in Louisiana? No. But then I decided I couldn't talk about vampires. Without talking about Dracula? Without talking about the badass bitch that is Elizabeth Bathory. Mm. Do you know who she is? Nope. Oh, you are in for a fucking treat. Okay. So this comes from the Vintage News, but I also have... Several other reliable Something else that I need to add at the end of it. What? I know, right? So Elizabeth Bathory, you don't know anything about her? No. Oh, babe. Any true crime people out there are going to be like fucking dancing around because they're going to know who she is. The dark and twisted have always served as inspiration to artists. Even if sometimes dark means inhumane crimes and murders. An example is the notorious case of Elizabeth Bathory, the so-called Hungarian blood countess who seems to have inspired the conceptualised music authored by the British extreme metal band Cradle of Filth. <sighs> One of their studio albums, Cruelty and the Beast, released in 1998, was based on the sick legacy of the Blood Countess. Cruelty and the Beast is not the only artistic output based on the stories of the Countess's gruesome killings. The album itself incorporates narrative bits from the 1971 film Countess Dracula, a British horror film that explored Bathory's wrongdoings. As much as one may wish that Elizabeth Bathory was pure myth, she was a real person, born in 1560. Died in 1560. (laughs) 
and wreaked havoc from beyond the grave. <laughs> That's a one-year-old grandfather. Born in 1560 in Transylvania. No way. She was raised in a wealthy household and her family was well noted in the region for having produced a dozen prominent people, kings and nobles included. Already as a child, Elizabeth would display signs of disturbing behaviour, such as outbursts of rage. It is further known that as a child she witnessed acts of torture performed on peasants who happened to live in the proximity of the Bathory family home. Allegedly, it was the associates of her father who conducted these cruel deeds. But a number of her family members did not make good role models. One of her aunts supposedly taught her everything she ever needed to know about sadomasochism, while another close relative gave her a lesson or two on subjects like Satanism. All of it just might have served as the foundation for Elizabeth to one day become the sadistic serial killer, likely one of the wealthiest such murderers in history as well. Elizabeth would commence her bloodthirsty activities within the boundaries of her castle. She moved into this castle after marrying Count Ferenc Nadasti at the age of just 15. Her husband also came from a noble family. In fact, the Nadasti family was, in those years, one of the most powerful in Hungary. As rumour had it, following the wishes of his spouse, Count Nadasti had built a special torture chamber in the castle. As much as Elizabeth was educated in classical studies, able to quickly understand anything said in German, Greek or Latin, here, in the torture chamber, she demonstrated profound knowledge of various torture techniques. One of the methods she employed during the depths of winter was ordering some of her poor servant girls to go out in the snow. There, she would pour buckets of cold water over their shaking bodies and wait until their bodies turned lifeless after being caged in ice. Oh. On warmer days, Bathory would coat an unfortunate girl with honey and then leave her to the ants, bees and other hungry insects outside. Accounts suggest that at the beginning of these torture episodes on the property, Bathory was joined by her husband. He would at least limit her sadistic appetites to some degree. After his death in the first years of the 17th century, things slipped out of control. The sadistic urges of Bathory only seemed to intensify as time passed. Helped by one of her several assistants, a local witch named Dora Tessentes, Elizabeth did not limit her torture to the girls who came to serve her in the castle. The two would go out hunting for other girls outside the castle, and in the cruelest of circumstances, Bathory would consume bits of flesh taken from their bodies of her unfortunate victims. She allegedly believed their flesh and blood gave her strength, and improved her overall health. Bathory's sick behaviour was ignored for a long time because it was her relatives who administered the local courts and councils. She became well known among the locals for what she did at her residence until finally, in 1609 or 1610, accounts on the exact year vary, King Matthias committed to putting an end to the madness. The king commissioned Count Thurzo to see what was happening at the castle. He arrived there just in time to witness Bathory orchestrating one of her torture sessions on a group of young girls. This is when the horrors finally ceased for good. Bathory and all of her criminal assistants were tried and convicted on 80 cases of murder. Some estimates, however, suggest that the total number of brutal cases of torture and killings was much higher, 
perhaps around 650 young women were victim to Bathory between 1585 and 1609. While all of her assistants were sentenced to execution, Bathory herself was imprisoned in 1610, in a dark, windowless room inside the castle. The room eventually became her deathbed, when her body was found lifeless, inside one summer day in August 1614. Wow. And it's said that she was whipping a servant and some of the blood splatter landed on her skin and she thought, wow, my skin looks really beautiful after that blood and that she would take these girls and torture them and bathe in their blood because she thought it would give her eternal youth. Wow. So what are your thoughts on our friend Elizabeth Bathory? A little bit of a psycho, wasn't she, really? I mean, it's a bit like Vlad the isn't it? Nothing really actually vampiric about the story at all. Just a really violent person. What's really interesting... Is it's a really early mention of Satanism. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about Satanism. Incredibly early. early. And there's lots of talk about, like... In other sources, they were talking about her, like, summoning things in the castle and, you know, doing these demonic rituals and whatever, whatever. It's more likely to be paganism, isn't it, really? I feel like Satanism is quite a new concept. It is very new, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of in the 60s? Yeah. Even that new? Yeah. Mm, yeah. I don't know. I could be completely wrong, but that's what popped into my head. Anyway, when I was researching for this story, and I was like, I need to talk about Elizabeth Bathory because I just think she's fascinating. A strong woman. The good, strong... I love a strong woman. (laughs) (laughs) But actually, there's a lot of arguments that it never happened. And she is cited as one as like one of the most notorious serial killers in the world that has ever existed. But when I was looking at all that's interesting and what they had to say about her, they had something very different to say. Was it that history was written by a scorned man? Bathory's case may not have been that cut and dry. In fact, some Hungarian scholars say it may have been motivated more by others' power and greed than her supposed evil. It turns out that King Matthias owed Bathory's late husband, and then her, a very sizable debt. Matthias was not inclined to pay that debt, which historians say may have fueled his move to incriminate the Countess and deny her the opportunity to defend herself in court. Likewise, some historians say that witnesses probably provided the incriminating yet contradictory testimony under duress that the king called for the death penalty before Bathory's family could intervene on her behalf. This too may have been politically motivated, as the death penalty meant that the king could seize all of her land. Perhaps historians say the true story of Elizabeth Bathory looks a little bit more like this. The countess owned strategically important land that increased her family's already vast wealth. As an intelligent, powerful woman who ruled without a man at her side, and as a member of a family whose wealth intimidated the king, his court went on a mission to discredit and ruin her. The best case scenario is that Bathory abused her servants, but came nowhere near the level of violence alleged against her at trial. The worst case? She was a blood-sucking demon sent from hell to murder virgins. Both make for a good story. Even if only one of them is actually true. Demon, obviously. Obviously demon. Yeah. I'm saying demon. 100% um, yeah. demon. Yeah. History is written by men and losers. Victors. Got it the wrong way around. Yeah, definitely <laughs> not losers. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Interesting. Again. I mean, that's probably more than likely, actually. 
as inclined as I am to say that she was like just this crazy murderer. Yeah, it's probably more than likely to do. I think she probably was. Her, I think she probably was an absolutely horrific person. Yeah, she because you had to be horrendous. to hold power back in those days. If you weren't like, yeah, you were ruthless to hold yeah, power. If you weren't ruthless, you lost power. Really fascinating. Yeah. Interesting. So, what are your thoughts on vampires? Are they real or are they not? They are definitely real. Um, you know what? As black-eyed kids. I agree that vampires are 100% real. Oh my gosh, why? Who am I? Because vampires are real. There are many communities of people in the world who identify as vampires. Oh, I'm not just talking about those people that like spent a long time in their mum's basements and then decided <laughs> they were vampires. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about actual vampires. <laughs> in all ways, except physical. I am a wolf. That dude's called it. I'm talking about like actual vampires. I'm talking about black-eyed kids. So the vampire legends then? Yes. Where do you think they came from? Um, probably stories like Peter's. Where somebody got lucky and went around murdering loads of people and then... Yeah, or someone, or very likely, not in Peter's case, but in another story, someone was in a coma and they just didn't understand what a coma was. Yeah, and probably. And then woke up in the grounds. <laughs> I mean, the Victorians, you know, the Victorians had that obsession with death where they had like Little death bells, bells in their yeah. coffins and, you know, post post-death photography and all that stuff it's you know that kind of obsession with death probably came from the leftover vampire legends where people got really obsessive about well the undead vampires the like the dead are a risk to the living yeah so they probably you know probably those things came from that and you didn't even talk about highgate cemetery for you once no i didn't and the highgate cemetery vampire yeah i was impressed that was all a big hoax yeah was it birkenhead just body snatchers the Highgate Cemetery thing happened like relatively recently in history. Oh yeah, and there yeah, was a whole there was a whole thing about hunting the Highgate vampire. I read about it when I was researching, and I can't remember exactly what it said, so I'm not going to say anymore in case I say it wrong, and then people will come at me and attack me, and then I'll become a vampire and so avenge and avenge my own death. So yeah, trolls on the internet can yeah. turn you into a vampire. Absolutely, and then just turn you into a troll. Uh, yes, with pink hair. Yeah. Oh, amazing! <laughs> if you are interested in vampires, like we are, uh, I would. Very, very much recommend that you also watch what we do in the shadows. Both, yes, both the TV series and the film. Yes, please do. It is a mockumentary about the lives of vampires, and it's fucking gold. So good. So and in good. the in the TV series, there are a number of vampires living in a house together. They make a documentary about them, but one of them is an energy vampire. Oh yeah, which oh, is the fucking so good. so good funniest thing I have seen. There's an energy vampire who. He comes face to face with an attention, uh, a sympathy vampire. Yeah. Oh, fuck me. It's great. So if you haven't seen what we do in the shadows, I would strongly recommend. Start with the movie. Start with the movie and then watch the series. So would you like some reviews? Yes, please. So our first review comes from Jet Allen and, and Jet says that we are creepy and relaxing, which is the perfect combination. <laughs> That's I would a say. good combination. Also would be on my Tinder bio if I had Tinder. More creepy and relaxing. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. It was like spooky, <laughs> funny, cool was the last one. Last creepy. Week or, you put yourself it? down as creepy on the Tinder profile. Creepy and relaxing, yeah. I would. I've got to be straight with people, you know. I've got to let them know how it is. Fair enough. This podcast somehow puts me to sleep. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> that is not the desired effect. And keeps me up all night at the same time. I know this is a cliche, but I love Emma's accent. Babe, you're... Yeah, I know. Everybody does. I now permanently sleep with a duvet over my head. Hello from Tennessee. Hello, Jet from Tennessee. We love you. Thank you for leaving a review. Go Vols. And our second review comes from Ashfay 22 which is entitled New Obsession. I'm slightly obsessed with this podcast. 
I love the reviews at the start and I also love the banter back and forth between Emma and Dan. The accents are great and I love the Irish slang. Has me in stitches most times. My husband thinks I'm a nutter for walking around the house with my headphones and while I binge this podcast. I love the Patreon page too. Keep up the awesome work. Thank you. Thank you. We love you. And then finally from Ash the Geek. Fun, scary times. I listen to you guys all the time. I've been binging your show while doing my work. And honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better podcast as I find paranormal stories fascinating. And the way you guys deliver it is just entertaining. Love you loads. Oh, loads of love to you guys. And I look forward to hear many more from y'all. Thank you. Thank you so much, you gorgeous, gorgeous people. And if you enjoyed our conversation about vampires today. Vampiric. Vamp- conversations vampiric verbosity oh, Ooh, who the fuck am I look at that Check language then you can come and chat to us on Instagram I'm on Instagram at real life ghost stories and I'm on Instagram at 50p movie club you can come and find us on Twitter at real ghost pod you can find us on Facebook we have a Facebook page that is real life ghost stories podcast give it a like and then join our super group which is or LGS super group and the answer to the question is Emma and Dan I'm Emma I'm Dan. And we've also got a cat called Tiny Bames who really runs the show behind the scenes. If you would like to send us in a story for our Wednesday mini episodes, you can do so by sending it to Podcast at gmail.com. Please remember that and don't ask me because I don't remember it and I'm really sorry to that guy that asked me for it. Podcast at gmail.com and if you send us a story, we will read it out. And I'm waiting for that UFO story. I cannot wait. I won't read a UFO story. Dan will. I will fucking die. I'll get into a cupboard and cry and never be seen again. He saw a UFO and then messaged me and said, I've got to send you the story. And I was like, I really want you to send me the story, but I can't remember the email address. I'm sorry. It's real life ghost stories podcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you want to support us in a monetary fashion, you can do so on Patreon which is patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories. And there for $5 a month, you get an extra episode a week. And for $2 a month, you get an extra episode of 50p Movie Club, which is... Uh, It's a podcast that I do with Mr. Dave Keen and I did used to do Mr. Will. Um, And we, I go to the shop and get 50p movies, which are normally really bad. And we sit and we watch them and we chat about them. And that is what we do. And that is it. We are almost at 500 patrons. Wow. Thanks, guys. I know, that is incredible. Thank you so much. Nice round number as well. I know, right? Isn't that nice? It's like half a million. We, (laughs) exactly the same thing as half a million. We love you all so much and we cannot thank you enough for your support. And on that note, we shall see you next week. See you later. Bye.